Welcome to Beyond Speaking. I am being your host today. We want to look into uh, emergency protection orders or EPOs. Before we proceed, please note that the content of this podcast does not constitute legal or any other professional advice. Listeners should consult with the relevant professionals for specific advice related to their situation. Let's start with a fundamental question. What is an emergency protection order? Imagine this scenario. Emily, a mother of two, lives in a constant state of fear due to her partner's escalating aggression. Late one night, after a particularly frightening altercation, she finds herself at a crossroads, needing immediate legal intervention to ensure her and her children's safety. This is precisely the scenario where an EPO becomes a lifeline. An EPO is a court-issued order rapidly enacted to protect individuals like Emily from imminent threats of family violence. It's not just a piece of paper. It's a barrier, a protective shield that legally prevents the abuser from causing further harm. Whether it's physical abuse, intimidation, or even stalking, an EPO addresses these dire situations. But how does an EPO work, legally speaking? It's crucial to understand that an EPO isn't a mere suggestion. It's a legally binding directive with specific conditions laid out by a judge. It can include provisions like prohibiting the abuser from entering Emily's home, contacting her or her children, or even showing up at their school or workplace. In essence, it creates a safety bubble around the victim. Now that we understand the essence of an emergency protection order, let's examine the legal framework that upholds these orders. This is where the rulebook of EPOs comes into play, guiding their application and ensuring they serve their protective purpose effectively. The Protection Against Family Violence Act is the cornerstone legislation here. It's like the rulebook for EPOs defining what counts as family violence and setting the stage for legal intervention. Under this act, behaviors like intimidation, property damage, forced confinement, and more are recognized as family violence. It's not just about physical harm, it's about creating an environment of fear and control. The law recognizes the multifaceted nature of abuse, ensuring that victims aren't left in a legal gray area. Now, when it comes to enforcing these orders, uh, think of the police as the guardians of safety. They are the ones who ensure that the rules set by the court are followed to a T. And while EPOs are typically set for a maximum of 90 days, this period is crucial. It acts like a circuit breaker momentarily halting the cycle of abuse and giving victims the breathing space to plan their next steps. It's important to note that these regulations aren't just bureaucratic red tape. They are the scaffolding that supports the entire process from application to enforcement. They ensure that when someone like Emily steps forward seeking protection, the system is ready to respond with speed and efficiency.
moving forward, let's navigate the actual process of obtaining an emergency protection order. This is where theory meets practice. It's vital for anyone in a threatening situation to know not just what an EPO is, but how to get one. The first and most critical step for a victim of family violence is immediate safety. If Emily is in direct danger, her first call should be to 911, a lifeline in urgent situations. But what comes next? Emily needs to apply for an EPO. During working hours, she can approach legal aid or her nearest court of justice. Here, she'll be guided through a process that, while legalistic, is designed to be accessible and empathetic. After hours, the procedure slightly changes, involving contact with specific hearing offices, depending on her location. Now, it's essential to understand that applying for an EPU isn't necessarily a solo journey. The police can be significant allies in this process. They can file an EPO application on Emily's behalf, especially if she's overwhelmed or unsure how to proceed. Once the application is in motion, it's a matter of law taking its course. The judge or justice of the peace reviews the application, assessing the immediacy and severity of the threat. If the EPO is granted, Emily will have a legal shield, a barrier between her and the threat she's facing. It's a document, but for Emily, it symbolizes safety and a step towards peace. Now, let's delve into what happens once an emergency protection order is in place. David Alfaro finds himself unjustly accused of making threats by a relative. Consequently, an emergency protection order is placed against him. This order redefines David's reality, imposing strict limitations on his actions. For the accuser, who is a member of David's family, ZPO serves as a safeguard, providing a sense of security and legal backing. It bars David from initiating contact or approaching their residence or place of employment. But for David, this EPO brings a host of obligations. He must adhere strictly to the conditions laid out. No visiting certain places, no direct or indirect communication with the complainant. It's like walking on an tightrope or misstep, one text message or accidentally encounter, and David could face arrest and criminal charges. It's a stark reminder of the weight of legal responsibility an EPO carries. What if the situation changes? Let's say the complainant decides they no longer need the protection of the EPO. The order can be reviewed and potentially lifted, but until that official decision is made, David must continue to follow all the rules of the EPO. It's a process that demands patience and respect for the legal system's pace. While emergency protection orders are essential legal tools, 
they're not without their challenges and limitations. Understanding these aspects is crucial, especially for those who might find themselves navigating this complex terrain. Let's introduce a scenario with Anna Anton. Anna has obtained an EPO against Tom due to a misunderstanding. While the intention of an EPO is to protect, there are cases where they can be misused, leading to unjust consequences for someone like Tom. This potential for misuse is a significant challenge as it can impact lives and relationships profoundly. For both parties, an emotional and psychological tool can be immense. For Anna, seeking and enforcing an EPO involves stress and fear, uh, particularly if she feels threatened or vulnerable. For Tom, being served with an EPO can lead to feelings of isolation, confusion and frustration, especially if he feels wrongly accused. It's a tumultuous emotional landscape that both must navigate. Beyond emotions, there's the practical side, the legal and financial burdens. The process of obtaining, contesting, or complying with an EPO involves legal fees, court appearances, and potential changes in living situations. For individuals with limited resources, like Tom, this can be a daunting prospect. Also consider the temporary nature of EPOs. They are designed as immediate short-term solutions, but what happens when the immediate threat subsides? The review process is necessary for fairness, but can also be a source of ongoing uncertainty and anxiety for everyone involved. The balance of rights is another critical aspect. The legal system must ensure that while protecting the complainant, it doesn't justly infringe on the respondent's liberties. It's a delicate balance requiring careful consideration and empathy from all legal parties involved. Now let's turn our focus to the review and modification of an emergency protection order. This is a critical phase where an EPO can be adapted to reflect changing circumstances or new information. It's where the static nature of legal orders meets the dynamic reality of human lives. Following the issuance of an emergency protection order against him, Tom, the central figure in our scenario, is prohibited from visiting his children. Over time, Anna, reflecting on the circumstances, starts to perceive that the situation may not be entirely straightforward. She contemplates granting to um, limited interaction with their children. This is the point where the review process of the EPO becomes crucial. Typically, an EPO is reviewed within 10 days of issuance. Uh, it's, it's a crucial moment, especially for someone like Tom, who gets the opportunity to present his side of the story. The court examines the initial grounds for the EPO and any new evidence or arguments. This review isn't just a formality. It's a vital check and balance mechanism, ensuring that the EPO remains just and relevant. During this review, Tom can argue for a modification of the EPO's terms. 
Maybe it's to allow supervised visits with his children or to permit indirect contact through a third party for logistical reasons. It's important to understand that this isn't about undermining the EPO's protective intent, but about ensuring it, it aligns with the evolving situation. The judge's role here is to reassess and recalibrate, balancing the need for protection with fairness for both parties. Lastly, this phase underscores the importance of adaptability in the legal system. Situations change, perspectives shift, and the law must be flexible enough to accommodate these changes while still providing safety and justice. As we near the end of our discussion on emergency protection orders, it's important to understand how they compare to restraining orders. While both are legal tools designed to protect, they serve different purposes and come with distinct implications. Let's introduce a new scenario with Rachel. Um, she's dealing with persistent harassment from a former colleague, not a family member. In this case, an EPO might not be applicable as it's specifically tailored for family violence scenarios. This is where restraining order might come into play. Restraining orders are broader in scope compared to EPOs. They can be used to address harassment or interference from any individual, regardless of their relationship to the complainant. So for Rachel, seeking a restraining order would be a more suitable legal avenue. One key difference lies in the enforcement and consequences of breaching these orders. For an EPO, any violation can result in immediate criminal charges and arrest. It's a strict and swift response. On the other hand, breaching a restraining order may lead to financial penalties or a finding of contempt, but it doesn't automatically escalate to a criminal offense. It's also worth noting how these orders are reviewed and modified. APOs, given their emergency nature, have a mandatory review process, offering a chance for both parties to present their case and for the court to adjust the order as necessary. Restraining orders, while also modifiable, don't always follow this immediate review protocol. In summary, while KPOs and restraining orders both aim to offer protection, they cater to different situations and come with varying levels of legal severity. It's essential to choose the right tool based on the specific circumstances you're facing. This brings us to the end of our deep dive into emergency protection orders in Canada. From understanding their essence, navigating their application, to comparing them with other legal protections, we've covered a lot of ground. I hope this episode has been informative and empowering, shedding light on a critical aspect of Canadian law. 
thank you for listening to Beyond Speaking and brought to you by Olex Legal. Stay tuned for more episodes where we unravel the complexities of the law and make it more accessible for everyone.